We'll be looking at page number eight in the notes that you should have as we look at our third of four sessions on the theme of positive holiness. It is a delight to be back with you for this third of our four times together. Thank you for your hospitality, both tonight and on the previous two occasions. I've enjoyed personally very much our time together, and I thank thank you again for the invitation and for your kind attention as we've gone through these matters related to this important topic of, of holiness. Holiness is the solution because worldliness is the problem. We've seen that there is something wrong with the world because the world operates according to values and desires that are contrary to God's design. We've defined worldliness as fallen values expressed in culture. Holiness means to be set apart, to be separate, to be different, to march to the beat of a different drummer, to be motivated by different values and different desires. But we've seen that holiness is not primarily what we do not do or what we refrain from or what we avoid but rather holiness is primarily what it is we're pursuing, what we're trying to achieve, namely Christ-likeness. And thus the title of the series, Positive Holiness. Holiness is a pursuit of something, and then those things that we refrain from are all because we can't engage in those if we're to achieve the goal of Christ-likeness. We saw last week that in order to go against the current of the culture, If you're going to do that, if I'm going to do that, then each of us has to be absolutely convinced that the world has nothing to offer. That the cosmos, the arrangement of the world that is anti-God in its values and in its desires, has nothing to offer to the Christian. And only when you are convinced of that, only when you are convinced of what we saw last week from Romans chapter 1, that the unsaved, those who are immersed in the world system, know God but they do not want to know God, and as a result, it renders them foolish. Now, if worldliness is the opposite of holiness, and it is, then we need to distinguish, we need to differentiate between godly values and worldly values. We saw last week that sometimes there'll be overlap between those because the world sometimes borrows, I prefer the word steals, Values from the Christian worldview. And so in the middle of page 8, we listed some sample values that the culture may, may demonstrate, may express. Some of them are godly and some of them are not. Wealth, I have listed for you there. And you look at what the Bible has to say about valuing wealth and it's, it's negative. And so wealth is a, is a, is a worldly Value expressed in the in the culture, but then you've got things like family and marriage. We noted last week, and these are godly values. And there are still worldlings. There are still those who are unsaved who engage in family and and, and in marriage. They do so because they are benefiting from the Christian worldview or things like work. But then there are things like sensuality, uh, evil values, sinful values, fallen values. Or, lastly, we listed last week, autonomy. To be ruled by self. To be a law unto myself. 
So you and I live in the world, but we are not of the world. And as we journey with Christ and grow in Christ in the world, we have the task of evaluating, distinguishing which values expressed in the culture are worldly and which are are godly. And that's where we left off last week. Now, after that list of sample values, then I say here, in order for the believer to effectively evaluate the values of the culture, he or she must be immersed in the Word of God. According to Jesus, we are sanctified by the Word, John 17 and verse 17. And sanctified again means to be made holy, to be set apart, to be different. And therefore, the Scriptures, when accompanied by the work of the Holy Spirit, are the most potent change agent in the universe. The most powerful agent of change in the universe is the quick and powerful and alive, according to Hebrews 4.12, Word of God. And the Bible is all about change. The Bible is about people changing their position from being enemies of God to being children of God, isn't it? That's what salvation is. And the Bible is about us progressively changing from self-centered to God-centered and from our own image into the, the image of Christ. And so the entire theme of the Bible is really centered around this issue of changing, changing our position before God in salvation and then being changed progressively in the process of sanctification. And it's the Word of God, this most potent change agent in the universe that is the means by which that change occurs. Now, how do the Scriptures function to do that? If the Scriptures have as a major theme change, changing us and our position before God and then changing us in the process of sanctification, what, how does that process occur? How do the Scriptures do that? And the most famous verse in the Bible about the Bible is 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. And in this passage, it offers a four-step process by which the Bible produces holiness in us. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for four things, for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, that is, mature, truly furnished unto all good works. Now, I want you to note that, that there are these four things, and I'm going to make the case that these four items that are listed in 2 Timothy 3.16 are actually a four-step process of change in the life of, of the believer. But if I were to ask you, what is the purpose for the Bible? What is the purpose for the Word of God? Well, the first thing in that list of four, it says that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for, and then the first thing is doctrine. And many might answer the question, what is the Bible for? What is the purpose of the Bible by saying it's for doctrine? It's for teaching. But in actuality, this passage, the most famous passage in the Bible about the Bible, does not say that the Scriptures are primarily about doctrine and teaching, believe it or not. Because the purpose clause in this passage is found in verse 17. And in the King James, it starts with the word that, or so that. 
in order that the man of God may be mature, thoroughly equipped, thoroughly furnished for every good work. So what is the purpose of Scripture? That we might be made mature, that we might become mature. And the process by which that maturity occurs is the list of four things in verse 16. The Scriptures are for the purpose of producing maturity. The means by which that happens is doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time proving that this verse is a process of change, but just in case you're wondering, the context of 2 Timothy 3 is, is all about change. If you go back to verse 15, you'll remember that Paul writes to Timothy and he says that the Holy Scriptures are able to make you wise unto salvation. And so there he's talking about the change that occurs when we come to Christ and we cease from being enemies of God to becoming children of God. And now in verse 16, he talks about the Scriptures being able to sanctify us. So the Scriptures save us, make us wise unto salvation, and now the Scriptures are God's means of sanctifying, making us holy as well through this four-step process. Now, I say it's a four-step process. Doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness. The reason I say that is you cannot revert, you cannot change the order of any of those and have it make any sense. It must start with teaching, with doctrine. And then teaching, having been received, results in the next one in the list, reproof. And if God just leaves us at reproof, well then we are undone. But thankfully he does not. He gives us instruction in Scripture for correction. And then discipline habits in righteousness. So they are in a logical order, four steps of maturity that the Scriptures provide for us in order to make us move us toward Christ's likeness. So I'd like for us to take some time to see each one of these. Doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness. Step one in the change process, then, is doctrine, a confrontation with the truth. The content of the Word of God is the catalyst for change. Now, how is that? It's because when you and I come to Holy Scripture, we see in its pages the character of God extolled, God's design for us given there. And it acts as a mirror to us. And when we're compared to the mirror of the Word of God, there is always change that needs to occur. There is always a falling short of God's standard when we've been taught the doctrine, the truth of the Word of God. When we compare ourselves to the absolutely righteous standards of the Word of God, there is most often a gap between what God lists and what we actually are. And that's why next page, James 1 says to be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if we any be a hearer of the word, not a doer, he's like a man beholding his natural face in a glass that is a mirror. And for he beholdeth himself, and he goeth his way, and forgets what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, and continueth therein, being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. 
The Word of God compares Scripture to this mirror. And we see ourselves in that mirror and we see changes that need to be made when we're confronted with the truth about ourselves and about God and about our, and about our sin. And so there's always then the need for change. I'll move on to the next point, but this, this issue of doctrine and teaching, it's foundational. You have four things here, but they start with teaching. And that is why any church that departs from teaching, any church that departs from regular and systematic teaching and preaching of God's Word, has ceased to use the most potent change agent that God has made available in the universe to accomplish his, his goals. You are blessed to be a part of a Bible teaching and Bible preaching church. And I pray and I trust that will always be the case. But many of you know that preaching and teaching are in, increasingly discarded in the evangelical church today. I had uh, a friend of mine who had a friend who attended a, uh, a seminary. He didn't go to a fundamentalist seminary. He graduated from seminary. And after this fellow graduated, he told my friend that, quote, when I graduated from seminary, I was convinced that preaching was the least productive thing I could do. He learned that at seminary. That as a pastor, there were all sorts of other things he more profitably, profitably could give his time and should give his time to other than preaching and teaching the Word of God. But God does not say that. God is about the process of change. And the means by which that change occurs is the Word of God. And the first thing the Word of God does for us to produce that change is to teach us. And so we must be taught the content of the Word of God. The content of Scripture is the catalyst for the change that we need. And then secondly, top of page 9, the content of the Word of God covers everything. It's exhaustive. Now, we know that the Bible does not address every issue in life directly. But it does address every issue of life either directly or indirectly. That is, all issues are covered in Scripture either in precept or in principle. So in the Bible, because the Bible is given to us by inspiration of God, it sources the omniscient God, the all-knowing God, who knows everything that we need for life and godliness, he has included in the Scriptures, exhaustively, either directly or indirectly, precept or in principle, all that you and I need in order to grow in maturity in Christ. The Bible covers everything. Either there is something directly stated in Scripture about the issue at hand, or there is a principle or principles in Scripture to be applied to the issue at hand. That's why we believe a doctrine called the sufficiency of Scripture. The Scriptures are fully sufficient for all that we need to accomplish God's purpose for us, that is to become like Jesus, Jesus Christ. And it's for that reason that verse 17 of 2 Timothy 3 tells us that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, is profitable for, so that the man of God may be thoroughly, may be equipped or thoroughly furnished for how many good works? Every, and that, that word every is extremely important. Every good work. The scriptures are sufficient. The first step in the four-step change process begins with the content, the teaching, the doctrine 
of the Word of God. But then there's step two. Having been taught the doctrine of the Word of God, I'm confronted, as it were, with the the mirror and the standard of God's holiness, and there's a gap and I fall short, and as a result, then, the second thing in that list of four occurs. I'm reproved, or reproof. And I call that step two, the clash of sin and righteousness. Now, the word that's translated reproof is sometimes translated, I have listed there, rebuke as well. Or a word that you perhaps are more familiar with. It's the Greek word that's commonly translated conviction. And so I'm confronted with the word of God, the teaching of scripture. And as a result, I'm convicted, reproved. Rebuked. Conviction is the result of this confrontation with the truth of the Word of God. Now, how does that conviction occur? Well, as I look into the Word of God, as I'm taught the Word of God, as I exposed to the mirror of Scripture, the Bible exposes my sin in a very deep way. That's why Hebrews 4.12 says the Word of God is quick, that is, alive. It's powerful. Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner, now notice, of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. How can a book do that? Well, it's because it's not just any book, but it's given by inspiration of God. And our all-knowing God is pleased to use the absolutely inerrant content that He has given us in Scripture that covers every issue, directly or indirectly, and to have the Holy Spirit move upon the hearts of His people to illuminate their minds, to turn the light on. That's what that word illuminate means. So then we see the significance of what God is saying and we are are cut to the heart. We are convicted. The Bible has the ability and does expose our sin. Now why do I need that? Why do I need... God's Word to do that, why do I need the, the illumination of the Holy Spirit for that to happen? Well, it's because of this fancy term I have in number two there, the noetic effects of sin make it necessary. Noetic, what's that mean? It comes from the Greek word in your New Testament that's translated mind. The noetic effects are the effects of sin on our minds, the way we think. And what is the effect of sin upon the mind? Well, notice Jeremiah 17.9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? You cannot know your own heart. Your own heart deceives you and deceives me, the Bible teaches. I remember years ago I went to visit a young man who had attended our church for many years. His family had uh, been faithful members of our church. He grew up there. But then as a, as a young man, he, as often happens with young people, began to drift. In fact, so much so that he was living with his girlfriend. And myself and another man from the church had to go over and to confront him with the sin, confront him with the truth of Scripture, the teaching of Scripture. And as we did that, his response to us was, quote, but I know in my heart I love her. And my response to him was, you don't know your heart. The Scriptures reveal your heart. And when you contradict what the Scriptures say, that is a true picture of your heart, not what you think is in your heart. Our hearts are deceptive. 
And so we need the Word of God because of the effects of sin, including on on how we think and how we twist things. We need the clear teaching of the Word of God to convict us. Romans 8, 7, the carnal mind is at war with God. It's enmity against God. I want you to notice 1 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 5, because I think folks uh, don't appreciate the impact of what Paul says in these three verses in 1 Corinthians 4. What Paul is saying here about himself, about the Apostle Paul, that he himself does not have the ability to judge his own heart. Notice what he says. With me it's a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. Yea, I judge not my own self. For I know nothing by myself. Yet I am not hereby justified, but he that judges me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time, until the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and make manifest the counsels of the hearts. And then shall every man have praise of God. Paul is saying here that I can't even judge my own heart. The Lord will be my judge. I believe that I am innocent. In fact, that's what some translations say here. I believe that I am innocent, but that doesn't mean I am. The Lord will judge me. And if Paul cannot discern his own heart, and he needs the Word of God for that process, then you and I do as well. So conviction is the result of confrontation with the truth. And conviction, this rebuke, this reproof, that comes after we're confronted with the teaching, doctrine of the Word of God, bottom of page 9, has an objective basis. Contrary to popular opinion, conviction is not a matter of feelings. Rather, it's a legal term used to denote the prosecution of a case against one who has broken the law. Now, I say the popular notion is that conviction is a feeling. You all know what I mean when I say that? When I, was a, when I was a kid attending Christian high school, I graduated from a Christian high school. I thank God for that. But one of the things that was very common in our school was to talk about the need for each of us to develop our own convictions. And some people would participate in certain activities and other people wouldn't participate in uh, those activities. And, and the, the, the reason, the rationale was so-and-so, quote, has a conviction about it. So-and-so has convictions. And when I would hear that as a teenager, you know, it sounded like a disease. He's got convictions. And the people with convictions were usually pretty miserable (laughs) as well. But it was, you know, you have it, I don't have it idea. It was a subjective Basis rather than an objective basis. Conviction, alenko, is the, the Greek word in Scripture, and it is, as I say at the bottom of page 9, the prosecution of a case against one who has broken the law. So we're confronted with the doctrine, the teaching of the Word of God, and then we are convicted as law breakers. I don't measure up. I do that thing that Scripture says I should not do. I'm convicted. Or I fail to do that thing that Scripture says I should do. I'm convicted. And so the Scriptures convict us both of sins of commission, 
Things we do that the Bible forbids. Sins of omission. Things that we fail to do that the Bible commands. But it is a case against one who's broken the law on an objective basis, and thus I am convicted before the law of God. So the Scriptures are this change agent, producing maturity for every good work. It's done in four steps. Doctrine or teaching. And then uh, rebuking or conviction. And then thirdly, top of page 10. The third step is correction. That is the answer to now conviction. Now think about it. If God left us here, we would be miserable indeed. You have this change process and the Word of God teaches us and we fall short and there's a gap as we look into the mirror of Scripture and then we are rebuked, reproved, convicted. And if there were a period after that, that would leave us in our misery. But God's purpose for the teaching and the conviction is that there will be change. And so there's a third and a fourth step, thankfully. And the third step is correction, which is the answer to conviction. The Bible does not leave us, top of page 10, in our guilt after conviction. Rather, it provides instruction by which the wrong can be made right. The word that's translated correction means to cause to stand. So if a building is constructed, if a building is erected, then it means it is that it is it is it is built up. It is it stands. To to correct is to cause to stand something that has previously fallen. And by the teaching of the Word of God and then the conviction that it results, we are guilty, we have fallen, but God wants us to stand. And he gives us instruction in Scripture about how to do that. And so he gives us things like I have an A and B. He gives us instruction about putting off what we've been convicted of. And putting on what we should be pursuing. So correction requires that we put off sinful behavior, Ephesians 4. Put off concerning the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. So we put off whatever it is that the Scriptures have revealed in their teaching that we're not doing that we should, that we are doing that we should not. And then the Bible tells us what to put on. Put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Scripture is filled with instruction to tell us how to make right what is wrong in our sinful lives and whereby we have fallen. So you have a four-step process. You have teaching or doctrine. You have rebuking or conviction. You have correction to cause to stand that which has previously fallen. And then fourthly and finally, God is not interested in us simply falling and getting back up and falling with the same sin again. And that's what the fourth step is about. Instruction, which is the habit of correct behavior. Having been corrected, God now is interested in giving us instructions for disciplined training in righteousness. The Scriptures provide not only direction to correct sinful behavior, but they also provide what's needed to continue in the paths of righteousness. The word that's translated instruction is the same 
word is sometimes translated discipline in your New Testament. This suggests that habits of godliness require effort and hard work. God tells us that there are, that there are disciplines of, of godliness, spiritual disciplines, training, that we need to engage in. And they require effort. They don't just happen. And so for the habits of righteousness to be made, made a regular part of our lives, we have to expend that effort and, and hard work. Many people don't want to do that. They want God to simply sprinkle whiffle dust on them and everything's okay. Years ago we had a man at our parent church, the church that planted the church that I now pastor. He's, this fellow is long gone. But he was one of the laziest fellows I've ever met. He was lazy in every aspect of his life, including pursuit of spiritual disciplines. He and his wife came in for counsel because they were having some difficulties with their teenage boy. Pastor Thomas and I gave biblical instruction about things that they needed to do in order to instill habits of godliness in their home and in their, in their, in their teenager. These were all going to require work especially after years of neglect. And this man understood that. And I'll never forget him saying, quote, but can't we just all hold hands and pray? Let's hold hands and pray and everything will be, be fine. Now, I'm all for praying. The holding hands, not so much. But, but it's going to require work and effort. This word for instruction is, is discipline. Now, how does that discipline occur? I have A and B for you there. Godly discipline requires constant exposure to the Word of God. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. That word, letting the Word of Christ dwell in you, means to, to settle down, to be at home, be so immersed in the Word of God that the Word of God is at home in you. And the Word cannot have its dwelling if it's not taken in regularly. That means reading it regularly. That means studying it regularly. That means having the discipline of being under the teaching and the preaching of the Word of God regularly. That means being with people who are so disciplined within the church to encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching, Hebrews 10. Why do we say, why does Scripture say more important? You know, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. It gives the reason so that we can encourage one another. You need the, the Word of God and you need to be with people who are seeking to live and apply the Word of God as well. And that requires discipline. Constant exposure to the Word of God and it requires to be regular study of and meditation on the Word of God. Psalm 1, His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in His, God's law, doth He meditate day and night. Meditation is reflection. It's mental exercise, rehearsal, integration of the truth into thought and, and action. It's one of the reasons, dear friend, that our Christian conversations, chat, should be about more than just the mundane of what's going on in life. 
God has put you in a community of faith of people who presumably are seeking to grow into Christ's likeness. And He has put you together to spur one another on to love and, and good deeds. And so in your conversation, you're meditating on and you're reflecting on, you're thinking about the truth of the Word of God that you've read in your devo- personal devotion, in what you've been taught in your Bible teaching and preaching church. This word meditate has, uh, has a way it was used in New Testament times. That's gross, but it makes the point. Perhaps you've heard this before, but the word that's translated meditate is a word that was used for a, a cow chewing its cud. And which means then the, it would go down as the word of God goes into us, but then we will, will bring it back up and rehearse it and think about it. And I just ask you to consider How often do you leave having been taught the Word of God? You go into the parking lot and you get in your car and you forget about what it was you just heard. The Bible says that we must be engaged in disciplined training in righteousness to establish habits of godliness that lead to maturity. So how does holiness occur? Through the most potent change agent in the universe, the Word of God, illuminated by the Spirit of God through a four-step process of doctrine, of reproof, of correction, and instruction in righteousness. Now take a look at page 11, if you will, in our remaining time. I can quickly talk about then the process of holiness. We looked at the means of holiness. The means is the scriptures and the four-step process. But then that process needs to be integrated into our thinking and our decision making. And that is what lesson number five is about. Genuine Christians desire to please God. But because the realm of our activity is a fallen world, the task of pursuing behavior that's pleasing can be quite complicated. The difficulty of the task has caused many to simply give up, neglect their responsibility. But the proper response is to develop a system of decision-making that will honor the Lord. Now, let's first just quickly review the problems now in making decisions on a day-in and day-out basis such that I make choices that are honoring, pleasing to the Lord, godly choices. But what are the problems with that? Well, the first one is the believer's relationship to the fallen culture, to to the world. And there are four possible approaches that one can take, and these have all been taken by various people at various times. You can take an approach to the world that says you are in the world and of the world. Now, who is it that sees themselves as both in and of the world? That is, they are physically located in the world, and their desires and their allegiances and their values are derived from from the world. They're of the world. In it and of it. Who is that? That's your average pagan. That's the unbeliever. They're in it and they're of it. And that's who you were at one time before you came to Christ. In it and of it. But then there is the possibility of taking an approach that says, I'm not of it. I'm, I'm, I've been called out of the, the world in terms of my values. But I'm not only not of it, I'm not in it. Not in the world and not of the world. <laughs> and who does that? That would be the monastic approach. A monk who separates themselves physically, tries to, from the world. 
living according to different values, but separating themselves, isolating themselves from the world. Or an Amish approach. And I must say, I must say, that sometimes this is the approach that Christians take as well. Isolating themselves from the world. God does not say to isolate yourself from the world. He says we are, as we're going to see, in the world. He's left us here in it, but not of it. Or third approach is not in, withdrawn from the world, but notice this, but still of the world. The source of the values and desires is still from the world. That's what I'm saying there. Not in it, but of it. What do I mean by that? And I say this is the common, and I have Christian in quotation marks there. This is your average run-of-the-mill 21st century worldly Christian. Have you ever noticed that Christians feel the need to have a parallel world to the culture? So you have, you have, the world has talk shows, then we have Christian talk shows. The world has, the world has its music, then we'll have music just like it, but we'll sprinkle Jesus on top. And, we'll, and, and if we call it Christian, it's a Christian talk show. It's, it's Christian mu- music. It's Christian movies. It's Christ- we'll have our own universe. All of it, or often much of it, representing the same values that are embodied in those things in the world. But the names have been changed to protect the guilty. Not in the world, but of the world. And I am very, very concerned that this is the condition of much of today's church. With a semblance of being outside the, the world's values, but in fact imbibing them in the way we go about what we do. But there's the biblical approach, which is you're in the world, I'm in the world, but not of the world. Jesus is the one who said this in John 17, They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them, through thy truth, thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. Paul, of course, is consistent with Jesus' teaching. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He doesn't say withdraw yourself from the world. Isolate yourself, but be transformed in the way you think, the renewing of your mind, and the values and allegiances you adhere to. So one of the problems we have is Understanding a proper relationship between the believer and the world. The proper biblical approach is that we are in it but not of it. Here's a second problem. And that is the danger of, of legalism. Now, legalism is technically this. The belief that our justification before God, our righteous standing before God, is a matter of our performance, what we do. And so if I do the right things and I keep the, keep the rules then I have right standing before God. And of course, no one will be justified before God by keeping a list of rules, by keeping even the best list of rules, the law, because no one can do that before a holy God. But legalism falsely believes that. The Bible is clear that we're saved not by what we do, but by believing what Christ has done. In addition, it's possible to do the right things and to do them for the wrong reasons. So even if we did all the right stuff, we, we never do all the right stuff for all the right reasons. And so those two issues, because some people are legalists, and because the truth of the matter is our 
behavior is never this side of the glory going to conform to the standard of God. Those two things have caused many to dismiss entirely the need for rules and standards of behavior. Have you ever heard people say, if you're somebody who, who has some standards and some rules, things you won't engage in because you're pursuing positively holiness, they, they call that legalism. But the proper approach is to develop rules and standards. It absolutely is. You cannot live holy, friends, unless you've got some rules and some standards, some things you will do and some things you will not do. But the proper approach is to have those, but to have them for ourselves. And I have that highlighted for you without seeing them as a means of salvation or descending into Pharisaism. Now, I have a footnote there, and it's, an important, I think, an important footnote. Look at the bottom of page 11 when I say, we should have rules and standards for ourselves. An additional issue with personal rules and standards is that they quickly cease to be personal. Many seek to impose the decisions that they've made on others. Now, while such imposition may be appropriate in an authority-submission relationship, my girls, I have a 16-year-old and a 13-year-old, I impose my standards on them. That's appropriate because we're in an authority-submission relationship. But when we are in peer-to-peer relationships, believer-to-believer, we now have to make these decisions, each of us, rules and standards of conduct. And I have to make those decisions. You have to make those. And if I'm not in an authority position over you, then I'm not, I'm not able, not allowed, I should not impose those on you. We must be, I say, willing to allow others to draw different conclusions than we. Now, this sentence has been very helpful to me, that last sentence at the bottom. We do not all need to arrive at the same answers. But we need to ask the same questions. You see, what's happening with many Christians today is they're not even asking the questions. All things are lawful. They sound just like the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Corinthians 10, I mentioned last week, all things are lawful. And Paul said, yeah, but not all things are beneficial. All things are lawful. It's all good. Now that I have liberty in Christ, I can do anything. I don't need rules and standards of behavior. That's the common approach that's taken today. No, we each need rules and standards of behavior derived from the teaching of the Word of God. We have to be careful about requiring that everybody arrive at exactly the same answer that I have personally or that you have personally. Now, how do I develop then these convictions, these standards, and use the word convictions not as a disease, but as the Bible uses? Page 12. Remember the definition of conviction. The popular definition is an act is okay to engage in if you don't feel bad about it. It's subjective, feeling-oriented. The proper definition is it's a legal term used to denote prosecution of a case against one who's broken the law. Stated positively, conviction is a settled assurance that what one is about to do is right. So I have a not only a conviction, I'm convicted as a lawbreaker. But a conviction is a positive, settled assurance, having looked at the Word of God, that yes, I should engage in this. I'm convinced thoroughly. And the Bible says, whatsoever is not of faith 
is sin. Romans 14.23. Where do I get then the information I need in order to arrive at standards and rules of behavior for my life to live holy in the world but not of it? It comes from the Word, its precepts and its principles. And here's the process. The precepts of Scripture I simply have to obey. When the Bible says to do something, I do it. When the Bible says not to do something, I don't do it. That's a precept. It tells you directly what it is you're supposed to do or refrain from. We simply obey those. But then we've got the principles. The precepts, but also the principles. And the principles have to be applied. And to apply them, we must not ask what's wrong with a particular thing we're contemplating, but rather what's right with. It was something we saw the first night, two weeks ago. That in the way we come up with our reasons, we don't take a positive holiness approach because we ask what's wrong with it rather than what's right with it. And I say here in our final minutes that we need to each develop a personal casuistry. It's a big word. What's it mean? It means case law. Most of the, the laws given in your Bible in the Old Testament are case laws. You remember reading through the books of the law, the, the first five of your Old Testament, and the books of Moses, and there you will often read, if this happens, if your donkey falls in a ditch on the Sabbath, then you're to do this, if then. So it's a, it's a particular case, or Deuteronomy 24. You know, if a man has, has a wife and he, he finds something in her displeasing to the, him, he's to give her a bill of divorcement. And then if, you know, he, she, she, he remarries and he puts her away, he can't have the original wife back. That's all Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. But it's all this, if that happens, then that happens. It's all cases. And you find that over and over again. And that's what a casuistry is. It's developing case laws. In this case, in these instances, when this happens, this is what I will do. And each of us needs to develop personal casuistry, case laws. The law of God is given in two types, timeless laws and rules, and then these, these case laws that depend on time and circumstances. Now, to help you and me do that. I have on page 13 just some suggestions of principles to apply to specific cases asking ourselves, should I engage in a particular activity? What is right with this thing? And then we make a decision about whether or not it will be part of our standards or whether we have a conviction that we are convinced that it's right for us to do. I'm not going to go through each of these they're not mine. You see the footnote at the bottom. That I also recommend a little booklet by Frank Hamrick where he's got a number of principles that help you uh, give you a guide to developing personal standards. But if you'll ask these questions that are listed on page 13, it will help you develop a list of rules, a list of standards, develop convictions that the activities you engage in are right and that are God-pleasing. And so I highly recommend that you begin to incorporate that or something like that in your decision-making process. All right, next week we'll conclude by looking at the mission 
of holiness. Tonight we looked at the means and the process. Next week we will look at the mission of holiness. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank You for this time again to consider these important matters derived from Your Word about how to live holy in an unholy world. Help us, Lord, to take on the task, the difficult task, of being in the world but not of it. Help us not to take the easy route to isolate ourselves and withdraw ourselves from the world. But help us to be lights in in darkness. That's what you've called us to do. Your Holy Spirit enables us. The Word of God instructs us. Help us, Lord God, to use the tools that you have provided in your Word, by your Spirit, and in your church to live lives that are honoring and pleasing in Christ's life. We pray in his name. Amen.